Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Enough of that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Maybe you haven't been with us here in a couple of weeks. So we started this letter. Sometimes we call it a book, but it's a letter. Paul writes a letter to a church, to people like me and you. And these people were dealing with a lot of things. They were a young church. They had been planted by Paul. And so Paul really cares for them. Paul, typically what he would do is he would plant a church. He would establish the leadership there. And then he would leave. And he would go plant another church. And he would establish the leadership there. And then he would leave. One of the churches that he stayed with the longest was this church. It was the church at Corinth. He was with them for over a year and a half, which, you know, by his measure, that's a really, really long time. To my understanding, the only church that he stayed with longer than, than Corinth was Ephesus. He was in Ephesus for about two years. But then he gets word that, uh-oh, there's some things going on back at this church. And he got word from, it says, from Chloe's home that there were quarrels and there were questions. So they were fighting with each other, some of that is because they had taken allegiances to certain people, and because of those allegiances, well, it kind of put one person against another. So they were fighting with each other. That shouldn't be happening in a church. And Paul's like, hey, stop it. He says, some of you even say you're of me, you're of Paul. He's like, I don't want you saying that. I mean, did I die on the cross for you? And of course, the answer is no, Jesus did that. So let's be of Jesus. Let's worry a whole lot less about people and personalities. That's good wisdom for today, isn't it? But there were also questions. There were just things that they were trying to unpack with regard to their new faith. I mean, it's not like they were born Christians. They weren't. That doesn't even make sense. You choose Jesus. And so as they were coming into the faith, there was a lot of baggage that they were bringing with them, a lot of previous beliefs, a lot of practices. There was a lot of cultural pressure around them to kind of conform to the way that everybody outside of that church was looking. And they were letting it happen. They were letting some of these things kind of seep into the way that they were practicing the church, and it was hurting the church. One of the things that was happening was, and what was common back then, was there was a group called the Sophists. And the Sophists really were all over Greece at that time. And what the Sophists would do is, uh, I've given this example before, They they were kind of like in Star Wars, they were like the Sith. Uh, Because you always have a master and you always have a student. And there was a lot of money in this game. I mean, there was money to be had, there was power, and there was influence. And so they would come into these cities and they would try to take over territory. And the way that they would do it is, is they would basically try to rip apart one of the other sophists. They weren't so much concerned about the truth. What they really were is they were trying to be smooth talkers. They were really more about persuasion than they were about accuracy than anything else. And unfortunately, the church kind of buys in. They're like, maybe we need to be like those people are. And Paul's like, let's don't. I mean, they would come into the city and they, would, they were kind of the intellectual elites. They would talk about philosophy. They would talk about ethics. They would talk about politics. And they would talk about the gods. All of those interesting things, right? And none of those things are divisive at all. Let's talk about politics. And the church is getting pulled into these movements, and it was concerning. Because with the church, what Paul was saying is, is we need to be a little less focused on just looking smooth, and we need to stay focused on the truth. And I think that's something we should take. As a matter of fact, he said this in chapter one, verse 17. He said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. That's why he sent me. 
And here's what he says, not with clever speech. Now, why did he say that? Is because that's everything that Corinth was about. It was all about rhetoric. It was all about being smooth. And they expected you to pony up and look just like them. And he says, I'm not going to do it. And the reason he said in verse 17 is for fear that the cross of Christ will lose its power. I don't want to manipulate this message. And I don't want to manipulate you just so that you'll accept the message. My message is very simple, is that Christ died for you. Now, to the people here, just so you know, that didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense. And, and so what you'll see in this passage today is you're going to see this tension. You're going to see a conflict between two types of wisdom. You're going to see the wisdom that is from God, and then you're going to see the wisdom that's from the culture that is around the church, and you're going to see those things come in conflict with each other. One thing that he says looks foolish to people is the cross itself. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. Here's what it says. It says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. We know that. Now, you gotta appreciate Paul's honesty here, right? I mean, he's honest all the way through. Earlier, when he was talking about, people were more concerned about who was baptizing them than the significance of baptism itself. Paul's like, I don't even remember the people I baptized. It's a little bit of a jab to the church. He's like, stop it. Stay focused on Jesus. You have to appreciate this guy's honesty. One New Testament scholar said this. He said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that are perishing and those that are being saved. Persons will respond to God in opposite ways. And it's true, isn't it? You probably have friends that have responded to God very differently than you have. But to those that follow Jesus, Paul says, the gospel, the good news, is the power to save you. Now, to those that are on the outside, it might not make any sense. He even gives this word. He quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, in the very next verse. He says, as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Now, just so you know, Paul was brilliant. So here's what he's not saying. You know, all for the dumb people. That's not what he's saying. He's not telling you to be as uninformed as you can possibly be. Paul was not uninformed. He was trained in Tarsus. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, this guy was the who's who. He was the top dog of the Pharisees. He was a big deal. He was well-informed. Instead, the quote that he's giving here is coming from Isaiah 29. Something was happening there. And what was happening was you have the people of Israel and they're surrounded by a guy named Sennacherib. Sennacherib was an Assyrian leader. And unfortunately for Israel, it wasn't looking good. Sennacherib's army, they were huge. They had been whipping everybody around them. The siege was coming. The people are like, what are we gonna do? He's, he's crushing everybody that's around us. And they go, I have an idea. Maybe what we can do is we can form a partnership with Egypt. Now think about that for a second. Imagine that a part of your history is that there was a people group that enslaved you for over 400 years. You see another group that's coming your way and you go, they're really powerful. You know what we can do? Align ourselves with the people that enslaved us for 400 years. Question, does that sound like a good idea? Because it doesn't to me. But it did to them. It did to them. And this is why, this is why Isaiah 29 says what it says. It says, when you think about it, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Some of you think that this is wise. This isn't wise. Why would you align yourself 
with a group that's evil. It doesn't make any sense. And your own history should be telling you that. So again, with Paul, he's not saying to be as uninformed as you can be when he says, I'll basically diminish the intelligence. What he is doing is he's beating up on people that are arrogant and self-confident, that have no room for God and the things that they consider. And here's the proof. You see it in verses 20 to 23. He goes, well, where does this leave the philosophers? By the way, my doctorate's in philosophy, so I kind of got burned a little bit on that part, you know? Where does it leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? Now, why does he say that? Uh, Just so you know, back then, these people were the most, they were like the, the big deal. I mean, in modern day terms, this would be like they're the athletes, they're the musicians, they're the influencers. That was them. They were a big deal. So he starts with them. But he goes on, he says, God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching. And he's not saying it's foolish. He's like, to everybody else around us, this sounds crazy. He says, but he's using our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. Now, I don't know how many of you have actually had any conversations with people that aren't Christians. I I actually have them quite a bit. It's one of the most life-giving things that I do is just to sit down, to talk with people, to hear their story, to see what it is that they believe and why they believe it. And then maybe to open up some doors for conversations so that they can see what I think and why I think it. I do that every week. It's, it's one, of the, one of the things that I love the most. Um, but it, it isn't uncommon for people to struggle with the gospel when I share what it is. That, that God saw fit, that Christ saw fit to leave glory and to come and stomp on this rock for a little bit and that the manner of victory was going to be to suffer and to die on the cross. Most people, when I share that story, say, it just doesn't make any sense. Did you know that they were saying, it just doesn't make any sense? 2,000 years have gone by, and everybody's reacting the same thing. Now, here's what was going on in Corinth. There was a guy named Aristides, and he said that on every street in Corinth, you would meet a so-called wise man who had his own solutions to the world's problems on every street in Corinth. What Jesus did, and this is the beauty of the Christian story, is that Jesus took everything that was to be known about God and he made it manifest for people to see. He is the image of the invisible God. Wanna know what God is like? You look at Jesus. That's how you figure it out. He made God, so to speak, tangible, visible, and gettable. You can understand it. That's what he's like. And without Jesus, here's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, we would still be scratching our head to find out what God is like at all. I mean, think about it. If you were to look over in Acts chapter 17, you know, in Greece, in Athens, there's a place called Mars Hill, sometimes called the Areopagus. And you have Paul going into the Areopagus, and they had all of these statues outside of the place. And he comes in and he says, I see that you're a most religious people. And they're like, yeah. He's like, look at all the busts to the gods that you got out there. It's rather impressive. By the way, they believed in a lot of gods. The people in Corinth believed in a lot of gods. He said, that's really impressive. You even even covered your behind a little bit because you have this one statue to the unknown God. 
Good for you. Let's cover all of our bases, right? I want to tell you who he is. And he tells them about Jesus. Jesus makes God knowable in ways that you speculating in your living room will never get you. It's what he did. And he breaks this down into two groups so that he can just kind of overcome this. Because a lot of what I see with people is people, so to speak, trying to find God or just to figure God out. The good news is with Christianity is God is coming to you so that you can know him. And there's a big difference. Look, look at this. He breaks down two groups. And maybe you'll fall into one of these two groups. The first group was the Jews. And you saw this in verse 22. He says, you demand a sign. You demand it. By the way, don't do that. Right? I mean, when you're talking about your relationship with God, demands need to take the back seat. Uh, there is one that is sovereign over all of creation, and I'm not that person. Neither are you. But the Jews demanded a sign from God. It reminded me of Matthew chapter 16. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come up to Jesus, and it says they demanded a sign from him that he was the Messiah. In verse 3, he kind of puts a jab back into him. Jesus was good at that, by the way. He puts a jab back into them. He goes, oh, so you know how to interpret the skies, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. He said, wicked people look for signs, but none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. He's like, oh, I'll give you one. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Now to them, they're like, well, what does that even mean? Well, let me give you a hint. Jonah was in the belly of the big fish for how many days? Three days, right? Well, Jesus was buried for three days. He's like, I'm gonna give you a sign. You'll see me die, and then you're gonna see me rise. If you read John's gospel, he said there is one miracle that God will perform that will vindicate everything that I do, and it will be my resurrection. That's it. That's it. He says, so watch. I'll give you a sign. Just so you know, when you open your Bible, you're holding a book that is a historical book. That's what you're holding. It is a book that is filled with a narrative of history. But that said, our faith is about what that means. It's not just to be studied so that our historical curiosity can be satisfied. Is what does this mean? His death means something. His resurrection, it means something to us. And Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, yeah, what it is, it's enough. It's enough. We shouldn't be asking for more. And here's how Jesus responds to the Pharisees and Sadducees. One, he already jabbed them, right? Oh, I'll give you a sign. But then it says this. It says, and then he left them and he went away. We demand a sign. He's like, I'm out. He didn't owe them anything. Uh, frankly, some of us are a little bit more like the Jews that he's talking about in Corinth than we want to admit. Because we will stipulate the terms and the conditions and the expectations for the way that God works. And until God ponies up to our demands, we refuse to relent. Jesus actually gives us a strong word of caution with that. He's like, I'm not going to bend to you. You will bend to me. And that's the way the Jews acted to him. By the way, just so you know, I was canvassing scripture, and I may be wrong on this. I may be. I'm going to throw this out there. But I'm not aware of any account in scripture where Jesus gives a sign on demand. I couldn't find one. Not one. And by the way, even if he provided it, probably wouldn't be enough. Probably wouldn't be enough. I was thinking about like, how many of you have seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Have you ever seen that? Well, shame on you. 
All right, it's been out for a long time. If you haven't seen it, it's your fault. I'm about to tell you about it. Um, George Clooney is in it. It's based on Homer's Odyssey. Uh, however, it's kind of set in Mississippi, just so you, <laughs> you know, whatever. You tell a story, right? Uh, it's set back in Mississippi. So here's the thing. Uh, George Clooney's character has a couple of guys that are always, always with him, right? And, and they, they come to this, this time where they, they start to believe in God, and he really struggles with it. But you fast forward kind of more toward the end of the movie, these guys are on the run, the law is after them to find them, right? And next thing you know, they, they, they feel like they're free, the governor has given them a pardon, but you know what, some people in the law hadn't figured that out. And so what happens is, is they're kind of going through the woods, they come upon this cabin, and oops, out walks the sheriff. And they're like, oh no, wait, wait, we have good news. The governor has given us a pardon, we're free. And he's like, yeah, I didn't get that message. And then you know it's a bad day, right? You know it's a bad day. And so there are nooses that are hanging over a tree, and they were going to hang those guys right on the spot. By the way, how many of you want to go see, oh brother, we're out there just yet? So their noose is hanging over the tree, and they're going to hang them right on the spot. Well, you've got the two guys that have been traveling with the whole time. You know, they start to pray. George Clooney, remember, he's the one that's the skeptic. He's always like, oh, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for everything. But in that moment, George Clooney's character starts to pray to God. Probably you would too, right? Starts to pray, Lord, if there is any way that you can deliver us from And all of a sudden... This huge thing of water, boom, kind of blows up over that, washes everything out, and then everything goes calm. Next scene pops up, and out of the water, boom, pops George Clooney and a couple of his friends, right? And they were saved. They were saved. And the guys are like, oh, thank God for delivering us. He goes, I don't know. There's probably a perfectly good reason for all this happening naturally. I bet they released a dam up the road. Now, the reason that I give you that story is because it fits exactly in line with the point that I'm trying to make. For some of us, even if if God gave the sign that we demanded, we would find a way to not accept it. And so what Jesus is saying to the Jews is, no, what you need to do is to be faithful with what God has already revealed. And you even see this in the parable. You know, with the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is separated, says he's in, he's in Hades, and he says, hey, can I get out of here? And he's like, no, that chasm has been fixed. And he says, well, can you end my suffering, and can you send someone to my brothers so that the same, the same fate doesn't befall them? And here was the message that was given. It says they have Moses, the law, and the prophets. They have everything that they need. And the reason they said that is, is why do you keep asking for more when you don't even put to good use what God in his goodness has already given you? You do nothing with it, but you keep saying more and more and more. They were no different. The second group, by the way, the Greeks, the philosophers, the people that I did a PhD in, those guys, what they were looking for, it says, was for wisdom. But what they mean by that is things that fit into human morals, things that would fit into human opinions, things that would fit into the culture around them. And can I just say, my friends, Jesus isn't like that. Paul Paul says in verse 25, we preach Christ crucified. That's what we preach. Just so you know, some some of the things that were floating around him, the Epicureans, the Epicureans saw religion as completely irrelevant and that the pursuit of pleasure was the only thing that life was really about. There were people that were following the philosopher Plato, which in their belief, he believed in the immortal soul that needed to be freed from its attachment from the body. 
and to ascend towards a deity. You had the Stoics. The Stoics were materialists who believed that uh, everything literally was physical. That was it. And several Stoic teachers came from Paul's hometown of Tarsus. But an important question for them is how does the wise, wise man live in accordance with nature? And the answer is just be virtuous people. Just be good. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And then there was a group called the Cynics. Uh, they espoused a more of a way of life than just a way of thinking. They wanted to live with the barest essentials, absolutely minimize everything. They were known for walking around in like torn up clothes, begging people for food. They were also known for being abrasive and arrogant. Look at you people of the world and look at us. All of this was flying around these people. It doesn't sound very different from us, does it? But here's what Paul was dealing with. He wasn't just dealing with a clash of worldviews. When he uses the phrase words of human wisdom or eloquent, eloquent wisdom, he says, really all this is, is they're trying to be smooth in the way that they speak to sell you what it is that they're trying to sell you. He said, I'm giving you something different. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. He avoided the smoothness of speech and he got to the heart of what we needed the absolute most. And he says, I get it. This is going to be a stumbling block for many of you. It's going to trip you up. And the reason is, as a crucified Messiah, that was offensive to the Jews. I mean, after all, Deuteronomy 21, 23, those hanging on a tree are cursed by God. How can that guy be it? The Romans, just so you know, they wouldn't even speak of crucifixion in, in public company because it was such a vile, and, 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 uh, and when you think of the practice of literally ripping some, somebody's body to shreds and then nailing them to wood, they wouldn't even talk about it in mixed company. He says, but on the outside, what I'm telling you, it looks foolish, but on the inside, it's the power of God to save you. It's the power of God to save you. We all live in a story, by the way, even right now. Everybody is telling a story. The question is, what's the true story? But everybody's telling one. I was reading, there's, a, there's a professor out at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, his name's Christian Smith. And Christian Smith was doing a study of, well, what's now the younger generation, right? And uh, over 3,000 people that he went and studied. He's a professor of sociology out in Chapel Hill. And he said, I think I've distilled it down what they believe into basically five, into five basic points. Here's what he said. They believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That sounds pretty good for a start, right? Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Three, the real goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life except when he's needed to resolve your problems. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die and basically everybody's good. So if out of 3,000 people that he surveyed, that was overwhelmingly the majority of what they believed. Does that sound anything like what Jesus was saying about himself. I mean, think about it. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but that's hardly the central goal of life. God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life except when God is... In. This is why Christian Smith said, this is what is called therapeutic moral deism. God is your therapist, 
but he's really distant from everything else until you call him in. And that's the way that most people, or what most people believe about God. In fact, 80%, when 80% of young Americans claim to be Christian and you ask them what they mean, that's what they mean. For Paul, he says, no, being a Christian actually means something very different. Very different. Because what it means is not just that you understand that sin is real. And by the way, everybody affirms that. Just take a look around. It's not that hard. It's that you also admit you had your own place in it. And that because of that, it creates this separation. You know, just like when you choose to walk away from a friendship, you no longer have the friendship. When you choose to walk away from God, you no longer have the relationship with God. It's created a space. And when you walk away from life, you're walking to death. He says, yeah, but in spite of this, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And part of the reason that it seems so foolish to many of us is because when someone treats us that way, we wouldn't respond with a similar sacrifice. We just wouldn't do it. We'd say, we'll be done with you. You have to remember, though, something kind of important. Paul is writing this letter to a church. He's writing to a church. And the reason that he wrote it is because they were buying into what the world around them was selling. Which story are you really going to believe? Is it going to be the Stoics? Who's, who's it going to be? And yet with faith in Jesus, you can be reconnected and restored to the living God and you can do it right now. Faith, which is trust or confidence, that the story of the gospel is the true story and we center all of our life around it. Every last bit. So he had to give this word of correction to the church in Corinth, didn't he? Stop it. Stop it. Quit letting this seep in. It's tearing the church apart. It's like a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Plato, a little bit of the Stoics, a little bit. Of... It's religious gumbo is what it is. And I love to eat gumbo. It's good. It's just makes bad stuff when we're talking about God. It won't work. He says, go back, go back to where you started in all of this. And let's get back on track for the good work that God has called us to in Jesus. So where are you at this morning? Where are you at, my friends? Uh, for some of you, let's just be honest for a second. Maybe we've bought into the story that Christian Smith was talking about. Where I'll invite God to participate in parts of my life if and only if I need him. Lord, I've made a real mess out of this. And so, like George Clooney, can you get me out of it? Only on the backside of it to say, I didn't really need you to begin with. I'm all right. I'm all right. For some of us, that's exactly how we live, even though we confess Christ. I want to invite you to reconsider that this morning. Jesus is unique. He's unique. None like him. And the story of Christianity says that even though none were pursuing him, he came after us. That's the story of Jesus coming to the earth. That's the story of his death on the cross. That is the story of his vindication and victory through his resurrection. He said, now I'm giving you a picture, a snapshot of what the afterlife looks like in all of this. Who wants to belong? And at that point, it's your choice. But it all begins with this. Just like with these folks in Corinth, is knowing that we were sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ is the one, and we hold on to him. It's as simple as this.
If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you are saved. It's as simple as that. Just the question today is, will you believe? We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.